Good morning, everybody. How are we all doing? Good, good response. Good morning, everybody. My name is Phil Adams. I have the joy and privilege of serving as pastor here alongside our elders and team and deacons here at Park Rogers Park. Thank you for coming out and being with us this morning on this beautiful, beautiful Chicago weekend. I just want to give a plug in two weeks, October 15th, we're going to have a newcomer's lunch. So if you're here and this maybe today's your first time or maybe you've been coming for a couple of months right now and but you're looking away to connect with more people, we're going to have a newcomer's lunch. It'll be at the Marshall's home just a few blocks from here. So all you got to do is text uh, connect RP Space Park to 22333 or ask somebody around you and uh, we'll get there's a registration form that you can fill in or like I said, find somebody around you and say, hey, how, how can I, how, how, who are the Marshall's? How can I get to the newcomer's lunch? I know that'll be a great blessing to you if you're able to get there in two weeks on October 15th. Okay, we're in a series, as some of you may know, working through the long book of Luke. We've just begun this series a number of weeks ago, and like I said, we're still at this kind of, kind of beginning stage, and so the passages that we're studying right now in the Gospel of Luke are still setting the stage, or setting the scene for the rest of the book. There are some kind of initial points of emphasis about Jesus that Luke, the author, he wants to bring to the forefront at the beginning of the gospel, where he writes about the account, an account of Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching. Last week, if you were with us, if you weren't with us, you can find it on our Spotify account. Last week, Jimmy took us through a passage in chapter 3 of Luke that covers the, the genealogy of Christ. There was a lot, a lot of hard names last week. That's why I gave it to Jimmy to do. And that, <laughs> and that makes up the, the early point that the, in that passage, the early point that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus had an identity that was determined by his relationship with his heavenly father. Jesus' identity was secure, it was safe, it was stable, it was unchanging because it was God himself who had said to Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And what God says is. And so as followers of Jesus, whose lives are securely placed in Christ, we too, if you're a follower of Jesus, we too receive our, an identity that is equally as secure and stable, an identity that is not determined but by what we think about ourselves, an identity that is not determined what, by what others think of us. We receive an identity as the beloved children of God that will forever never be lost or diminished. Our identity is based entirely upon our union through Christ with our Heavenly Father who sees us and loves us and is committed to us and calls us His own. And it's my prayer that as we gather as a church today that you will know that more deeply this morning. In Christ, the words spoken over Jesus are spoken over us. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We're going to see throughout Luke's gospel that knowing who Jesus is, knowing his identity, knowing his perfection, knowing his sinlessness, knowing his acceptance before God, it matters. Knowing it all matters because our redemption and our reconciliation with God is dependent on what is his becoming ours. And so last week, Luke made Jesus' identity really clear, but now this week, the question is, will he live up to it? Is, is the good name that God's son carries going to be a family name Jesus can live up to? Is Jesus going to one day disappoint his father? Is Jesus going to one day fail his father? 
Is the, the beloved son going to go the way of so many other sons and become the banished son, the rejected son? You know, I think, I think parents sometimes can, can be so set on, 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 on wanting us, their, their, their kids, to, to reach their full potential that quietly we can experience the, the presence of our parents as, as, as pressure to be someone we maybe fear that we can't be. Maybe we, we've just got really successful parents, a mom who is smart and successful and, and beautiful, a dad who seems to have played all his cards right throughout life and got to where we have no idea how to get to. Or maybe actually their, their lack of success or maybe the struggles that they have had faced has only motiv- motivated them to have higher expectations for us than they did even for themselves. And we maybe feel their, their gaze on our lives, the, the fear that we're going to feel them. Maybe, maybe it's a gaze we somehow feel even in their absence. Or maybe we're doing okay, maybe we're, we're making progress, maybe we've got to a place we, where we are respectable and we are respected. They do and they, they would find joy in who we've become and we sense their pride in us. But what if something goes wrong? What if something today in your life is going wrong? Your marriage is breaking down. Our mental health means that we need to quit the job that they're so proud of us for having. What what if we've lost the scholarship? What what, what if you're pregnant? What what if our our credit cards are, are maxed out and we need to go back to them for help? What if we've got a, a drinking problem or a drug problem? What if, what if, what if, what if we can't maintain the pressure that we feel? What if we feel? What if we feel we've already lost the life that they have expected us to have? What if we can't live up to our family name? Let's read our passage in Luke chapter 4. If you've got a Bible there, turn to Luke chapter 4 on your phone. We're going to read Luke chapter 4 verses 1 to 13. And it reads like this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he sat him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. God, we're grateful to be able to gather here this morning. God, we're grateful for this place and this space. We're thankful, God, that we can proclaim your word this morning. God, I pray that we'd be attuned to your spirit this morning, God. I pray, God, that each of us individually will just 
open ourselves up, surrender ourselves to you this morning. Knowing, God, that you're active and that you're working, you love your church. So, God, would you speak to us now, I pray. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's, let's, let's work through these verses in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to 13. In chapter 4, verse, verse 1, we're reminded of what has already happened in a previous chapter. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit because in chapter 3, verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove in a moment that signified divine approval. You're my beloved son. Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit then in chapter 4, verse 1, he bears witness to the wholeness, the harmony, the shared relationship with Jesus and his heavenly Father. To give you a little bit of a recap or a rundown, that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, meaning that God is one and God is three, with each of these three distinct persons of the Trinity being fully God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And none of these members of the Trinity are more God than the other. They each are equally God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They exist in in perfect oneness and and in perfect harmony, and they they exhibit an, an unwavering allegiance to each other. And as they do, as they are three and as they are one, they each play different roles as they serve one another and they work together. And one of the roles we see in the Bible of the Holy Spirit and one of the roles that we experience in our lives is to lead us and to guide us and to convict us and to speak to us according or in accordance with the will of God, the Father. Now what the Holy Spirit is actively doing in our passage today, and he does that in the life of every believer. The Holy Spirit speaks to us, guides us, prompts us. That's why before we, we come to God's Word on a Sunday, we pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning, that, that we would advise it to hear what He is saying to each of us individually. This is why we have our 9 a.m. prayer gathering, so that we have an opportunity to come together as a church and to prepare ourselves to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit before we come to the worship gathering. We actually shared a video this week of Shannon Kim sharing about why it's so meaningful to her to gather at that time at 9 a.m. And so the Holy Spirit being active in the life of Christ is what we see happening in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, the signifier of divine approval, the giver of divine guidance, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus, and he leads somewhere kind of unexpected. Let's take a look where he takes Jesus. In verse 1, we see firstly Jesus is led into the wilderness. And we thought about this a couple of weeks ago, that the wilderness is, is a place that's free from societal pressures, because in the wilderness you are, you are alone, which can be a good thing for living a life distinct from the status quo, but it can be a hard thing if you have to live your life without the support and the camaraderie of others. The wilderness is not a place of accountability. It's the opposite of of attending something like an AA meeting. Then we see in verse 2, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into this place of isolation for 40 days. Even those of us who are here, they like, maybe think they like the wilderness, or like to go camping 40 days, 40 nights, too long. (laughs) But that's not even 
everything that's unique and unexpected about where the Holy Spirit leads Jesus. It's not just the wilderness where he's alone and he has no accountability and that's just, it's not just there for 40 whole days. Look at the second half of verse 2. It says, and he ate nothing during those days. And just in case we're wondering how 40 days without eating made Jesus feel, Luke, the author, makes sure we know at the end of verse 32, there's no surprises. And when these days were ended, Jesus felt hungry. It's interesting in other gospels, it says Jesus fast for these 40 days, which gives a more kind of spiritual dimension to what Jesus is going through. But Luke here doesn't mention the fasting. He makes a more human observation that all of this not eating had Jesus starving. And we all add all, all of this up, the wilderness, the 40 days, the lack of food, and be like, this Holy Spirit's playing tricks on him. He, he's, he's, he's indwelled him, and now he's playing with him. The, the, the Holy Spirit just seems to be seeing how seriously people will take this whole led by the Holy Spirit thing. Wow, 40 days, no food, people really listen. What's going on here? In verse 1 and 2, it says, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. The, the, Matthew's gospel is actually a bit more explicit. He writes, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we say, oh, okay, okay, Holy Spirit. Surely, surely if the Holy Spirit who, who is aligned with the will of the Father was for, for some reason going to take Jesus into a confrontation with the devil to be tempted by the devil, he would take Jesus not out into the, to the wilderness, maybe for a couple of months he would take him to a training camp. We're going to go spend six weeks at a luxury compound in Las Vegas until fight night. You'll, you'll have access to a team of personal trainers. John the Baptist is going to be the head coach. We'll bring Elijah out of retirement. We'll get your diet on track. We'll get your sleeping on track. We'll get you in the best condition of your life. We're going to hand out tickets so everyone will be there right behind you, standing with you. No. Jesus is alone. Jesus is hungry. It's been 40 days of isolation. He's in the middle of nowhere. Jesus is weak, Jesus is tired, he's alone, and he's hungry. You know what I think the Holy Spirit knows? That the devil doesn't fight fair. That, that, that when we're tired, and we're stressed, and when we're alone, that that is when the devil strikes. When, when finances are tight and, and bills keep piling up, that that is when the devil comes after our marriages when we're, we're tired and we're stressed and we're overwhelmed and we're lonely, that that is when that, that guy or that girl catches our eye. When we're, we're hurting or we're grieving, that that is when we're susceptible to saying what we're going to wish we could take back. When deadlines are looming and distractions are so appealing, that is when we agree to go where we, when we know we should stay home. The Holy Spirit knows when and where the devil is going to attack. When the circumstances of life have us weak and tired and hungry and alone. That's why fighting temptation it involves some of the most practical decisions that we can make. 
like the decision to start getting to, to bed earlier or the decision to, to have a roommate in your place for accountability, our, 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 our holistic health matters in our fight against sin. Fighting sin can't only happen in our heads. Fighting sin happens through a change in our habits. I know when I'm at my worst as a husband or a father or even a pastor, when I'm most prone to getting frustrated or impatient or angry is simply when I'm most tired. So I know what I need to do is get better sleep. It helps me fight sin when I know I've slept better. It's practical. Maybe, maybe for some of us getting into a, into a small group to start meeting with other Christians regularly and not be alone to be with friends, with other followers of Christ is what you maybe need practically to prioritize in your life. Our, our holistic health matters in our fight against sin. But here's the thing in our passage, the surprising thing. The Holy Spirit leads, the Holy Spirit wants Jesus to be as humanly speaking in as vulnerable a place as he can get him. The Holy Spirit leads, wants Jesus to be humanly speaking in as vulnerable a position as he can get him. And it's there in verse 3, the devil gets to work and tempts Jesus in three ways. And each temptation fits nicely into three categories. The temptation of provision, the temptation of power, and the temptation of protection. So let's look at each of these temptations and how they play out and note that every time Jesus responds, he responds by quoting scripture back to the devil. One of the greatest weapons, church, that we have in living out the Christian life is to hold a deep, deep love and affection for the knowledge of God's word. If you love God's word as your inspiration and as your foundation for the life that you desire to live, it will come to serve you, it will come to strengthen you in times of weakness. So let's see what Jesus went through, the three temptations. In verse 3, it says, The devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil recognizes Jesus' hunger. He recognizes what Jesus is physically aching for. And so the devil brings up Jesus' identity as the Son of God and sows the seed of a thought. You do know if, if, if that's true, you can satisfy yourself. You, you, you do know there are ways to relieve your hunger, don't you? To which Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone. As to say, there is more to life, there is more to living than provision. There is more to life than having my needs provided for. Then in verse 5 it says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give this authority for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you will worship me, it all will be yours. The devil here is playing tricks and acting as if he has a kind of authority to give authority that he does not have. He, he tempts Jesus with the lure of power. If, if you're the son of God, shouldn't you have the ability to build a world centered around your desires, a world under your soul, authority? A world of, of not having to submit to anyone, the lure of total freedom and control to do what we want, where we want, when we want. And Jesus sees through it and says in verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. As to say, there is more to life than power. 
There is more to life than my sole authority. Then verse 9, it says, And he took him to Jerusalem and sat him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and there, on their hands they will lift you and they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil here is quoting scripture to Jesus and saying, isn't this true? Aren't these Bible verses true? Are they? Maybe they aren't. Maybe God isn't going to keep you safe. Maybe if you fall, he isn't going to send angels to catch you. Maybe he's willing to let you die. You should test him. The devil tempts Jesus to make a decision which sole purpose would be to question the faithfulness of his heavenly father. To which Jesus responds, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As if to say there is more to life than the certainty of safety. There, there is more to life than protection. What Jesus is really saying here while alone and weak and tired and hungry is that there's more to life than life. One of the things that is fascinating in this passage is that the devil doesn't tempt Jesus with things that at first glance seem overtly sinful, does he? There, there, there's no temptation to, to murder or to have an affair or to steal something. The Son of God eating the Son of God reigning, the Son of God safe. <laughs> These things at first glance don't seem like things that are a betrayal of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. In fact, provision, power, and protection all seem to be things that he should be entitled to. And there, there is a caution here for us that temptations in our lives often come not through overt, obvious sins, but as the temptation to distort a good thing by elevating it into the position of the most important thing the elevation of our families, the elevation of sex, the elevation of safety, the elevation of life into a position of supremacy. We're often tempted to take something that is good and something that has its rightful place and position it in the place of supremacy over our allegiance to Jesus. And there are so many layers to these verses, so much richness and so much depth that we could look into, but it's, it's, it's in thinking about this idea of placing something in a position of greater importance to us than our allegiance to Christ where we find the answer to the question, what was it that Jesus believed was more important? More important than provision, more important than power, more important than protection? If Jesus had access, if Jesus was able, if Jesus had a direct route, if we have the means to gain provision to have our needs and our desires satisfied and power to center the world under our own sole authority, if we have a way to gain certain protections to keep ourselves and our families safe, why not? Provision, power, and protection. Did Jesus really have to say no, no, no? Why didn't he say yes? Rogers Park, listen to the answer. This is what I got for you today. Because Jesus detected there lay behind every temptation a betrayal. Jesus detected behind every temptation lay a betrayal. 
The irony in this passage is that the devil wanted Jesus to give in as a means of Jesus proving his identity as the Son of God when in fact it was Jesus' very allegiance to his heavenly Father that served to strengthen his resolve. Here that's Rogers Park, the more to life that Jesus would not waver on and would not give up on was his allegiance and his loyalty to his heavenly Father. The more to life itself that Jesus would not portray was his commitment to the will of his heavenly Father. Through Jesus rejecting a series of betrayals that would gain him provision, power, and protection, Jesus is making it clear that his allegiance to his heavenly Father was of greater importance than what any betrayal could gain him. And so, is this it? You've come here today, and so far you've got some some tips on fighting temptation and to find out that Jesus was the child, the son, the daughter, that you're not. When, When the trials of life came his way, he did not feel, he did not falter, he did not disappoint. And then there, there is us. We who, who feel we have already lost the life that was expected to us, of us. Or we, or we fear it's just a matter of time for, for a secret to come out for us to feel or for us to fall or for us to relapse. Because when we are weak and we are tired and we're alone, we don't live up to our family name. Our wilderness experiences are a little bit different. They're not an exhibition of strength and allegiance, but often of regret and disappointment. And so is that it? Do we just, just see this passage is, is, is to, who, to, to tell us, see this passage today telling us who we are not? To make full sense of what is occurring in this passage, we need to understand verse 13, which is interesting because it is probably the easiest verse in the whole passage just to kind of skim over and see as a little bit of a transition. And it reads like this, verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And there's two things that are interesting in this verse, that when it says every temptation, Luke isn't referring to all three of the temptations that are outlined above. He's saying that encapsulated within these three temptations was every temptation. Whatever temptation that we can think of, whatever desire that we can even imagine, that would be a betrayal of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. In these three temptations, Jesus rejected every temptation that comes our way. That's the first point in verse 13. The second interesting point in verse 13 is that the devil was coming back. The devil, he wasn't done. Even even though Jesus had rejected every temptation, the devil wanted to keep trying, to keep pushing, to keep pressing in. So we know that what occurred in the wilderness was a reoccurrence in Jesus' life. Go on, you, you don't need to be hungry. I can protect you. I can provide for you. You don't need to be humble. You don't need to be in danger. If you're really the son of God, you, you, you wouldn't be sitting with sinners. If, if you're really the son of God, you, would, you wouldn't have to, to get down on your knees and wash the disciples' feet. If you were really the son of God, you wouldn't have to die. 
And so if this was not an isolated incident in Jesus' life, but he had to, in fact, contend with the devil throughout his life, what was the point in the Holy Spirit leading Jesus out into the wilderness in today's passage? Why, why did the, the Holy Spirit want Jesus to experience these direct, all-encompassing temptations when he was at his most vulnerable, at his weakest point, when he was humanly speaking, most likely to give in? What knowledge do we gain from knowing Jesus never gave in, even in the most difficult of circumstances? That if he didn't give in then, he never would. That if he didn't give in then, he never will. Church, our salvation is secured by the unwaving Trinitarian bond of allegiance between the Father and the Son. And the Trinity is unbreakable. It is the ultimate bond of oneness. Jesus, as we are going to keep seeing through the Gospel of Luke, walked the path to the cross and in every step submitting to the will of the Father. And as he did, he lived the life that we have failed to live. He lived the life that we're going to feel to live. He was the child that we're feeling to be. In every way, he lived up to every expectation. In every way, he did not disappoint. Jesus knew his father had a plan of redemption in place that was dependent on him living the life that we can't so that his life could be granted to us. So that when, so what is his could become ours. So that his righteousness could be imputed to us. Church, this is what Jesus was doing in the wilderness, being tempted in every way that we are, being tempted in every way that we feel, and choosing to reject every act of betrayal. So that we, the betrayers, we, the failures, we, the disappointments, could become the beloved. And it was the cross, and it was the, on the, was the moment of this great transaction when the righteous life of Christ was transferred to all who believe. And the beloved one died the death deserved of us who have been the betrayers. On the cross, Jesus proved there truly is more to life than provision and power or protection when he gave up his life as an act of allegiance to his heavenly father, as an act of commitment to a plan of redemption that necessitated his death. A plan of redemption planned by the Father before time to secure for us our place as his children. And so what compels us to fight sin in our lives, what compels us to not give in to temptation is our newfound allegiance to the one who has already proven his commitment to us. We rearrange our habits, we get back into a small group, we reach out to a friend to share and just be honest with them. We seek to be led by the Holy Spirit and attuned to his voice, not so that we might fix a relationship with God that we've broken, but because we realize the relationship has already been mended. And as the children of God indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are now free and we are now able to live lives of loyalty to our heavenly Father and one day to be perfected in glory. But until then, when we do fall again and when we do feel again, Remember that the Trinity is unbreakable. 
but it's not only unbreakable, it is the foundation of the family of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each of a role in securing your salvation, and each of their roles depends on their allegiance, each to the other. And when we give our lives to Christ, we are welcomed in Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, into their familial bond. And their bond, their commitment to us is unbreakable because Jesus gives us his good family name. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. God, we thank you that the beauty of it speaks to us. God, as our, our hearts long and with struggles and regrets and failures and disappointments and even looking ahead and wondering how are we gonna live up to the expectations. And yet this morning we can have joy in our hearts. We can have a hope for the future, knowing that your righteousness becomes ours. Knowing that we have a heavenly father who is entirely committed to us, that his commitment to us is based on and built off the commitment and the allegiance of the Trinity, that God is one and we are grafted into that. God, I pray, God, that we will fight sin in our lives, that we will reject temptation, knowing that the power of the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within us, and so we are able. But God, I pray that we will do it at a heart that is grounded on the gospel, that we know that your love for us is never going to change. And may that spur us on in our love for you, our allegiance towards you, and our desire to walk more closely and more intimately with you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.